0: talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber
2: is on the board. Will Erskine, inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Zoom, Dyna Weeks and Dave Woodard. If energy prices keep rising, can we burn election signs for heat?
3: Hey. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Get your head bobbing on a Monday. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Dan and Dave in the newsroom. I'm hearing things. No, it's just me. Don't worry. Uh, I hope, uh, hope you're having a, a a good day, kind of a gray day, but it, it's, uh, it's mild. It's, 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 uh, nice and warm. So that's, that's one way to look at it. All right. Uh, another jam packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for the whole thing. The big news today, uh, Jacob Hogarth, uh, a lead singer for Headley, uh, convicted on his, uh, his, uh, sexual assault charges, one still pending actually, uh, and then a, a decision coming down, uh, the the jury had a little bit of a, a hard time and the judge sent them back uh, to keep going and, and keep trying and eventually they did uh, they did uh, come to a decision and then from there Uh, What's happening now is they're going to try to figure out what to do with bail and what he needs to put up in order to uh, stay free until, of course, he is sentenced. But it certainly does look like uh, he will do some uh, time. Here's Global reporter Tina Trajani and what she had to say.
2: The jury declared itself deadlocked on some counts twice during deliberations before finally coming to a decision. Jacob Hogard was found guilty of raping an Ottawa woman in 2016, but not guilty of groping and raping a teenage fan around the same time. Criminal lawyer Andrew Fergirelli, who is not connected to the case, says it comes down to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They
4: had some doubt about the Toronto complainant, and it may be that the jurors did believe her to an extent, but there were issues with her story. There were inconsistencies that were big enough that they just couldn't get around them.
2: An Ontario judge says Hogard will likely face more than two years in prison. A sentencing hearing is expected this summer and the hearing on bail is scheduled to start this morning. An additional sexual assault charge, which was laid back in March, will go to court in August. Tina Trajani, Global News.
3: All right, uh, Headley frontman Jacob Hogard, uh, bail now conditions being set for his uh, conviction, another trial obviously pending. Many talked about the Me Too movement and how it kind of um, somehow bypassed uh, the music industry for uh, a long time. And there was, you know, uh, quite a bit of a pass there. By the music industry, while other industries were focusing on on this and moving forward, and many said, oh, "What's going on here?" And uh, it looks like that stories or those stories are starting to catch up to themselves. It'll be fascinating to see uh, how this progresses moving forward and uh, what ends up happening with the uh, with the further case that's uh, outstanding. Uh, and you know, if if this leads to uh, more dominoes to fall within the uh, music industry, which for the most part has been exempt from the Me Too movement uh, up until recently. All right, the other big story, gas prices continue to go up. Everybody's talking about it, it seems, um, uh, except those that can do something about it and give us a break with some of the taxes. So uh, continue to soar. That continues to be an issue we're going to be talking about. Also going to uh, bring a defense lawyer in to talk about the Hogarth case as well a little later on. Bulldogs having a little bit more difficulty with Windsor, uh, losing the first game on Friday and and then uh, winning the second game on Sunday, uh, they're in Windsor tonight. The Hamilton Bulldogs. So uh, more action on that coming up uh, tonight for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Good luck to them. All right, we got a jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, politics. We had a Ontario election last week. What does it mean moving forward? I'm sure uh, most of them are probably taking a well-deserved break and uh, a few days off and some time off after uh, an election campaign. But what happens, especially if you are in the opposition parties, what happens, uh, especially when both leaders have stepped down, where does that leave opposition parties in Ontario moving forward, uh, at least for the next few months or so? We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Today, 78th anniversary of D-Day. We're going to talk about this, uh, that this hour as well. Also, Ari Goldkind is going to be joined us a Toronto defense lawyer to talk about uh, the uh, Jacob Hogarth t- case and where that moves and how that moves forward. Also going to introduce you to uh, Jordan Carrier and uh, a new podcast called One Dish. Many stories that debuted last week uh, at the uh, start of National Indigenous History Month. And this is uh, the goal here is to provide insight on indigenous history in a around the Hamilton area, something that uh, we can obviously relate to with local history. So, fascinating story. We're going to highlight that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, we passed in, we passed 100 days in Ukraine. Uh, many thought that Ukraine wouldn't last uh, 100 hours and continue, uh, and yet still they continue to fight on. So, uh, we'll give you an update on where we are with that. Also, uh, we've talked about the threats and such in the news of, of what's happened in uh, And, and such in Hamilton schools. Uh, we're gonna talk about media coverage and, uh, and social media and such and how. Uh, does this help? Does it hinder? How do we spread the message and not, uh, and not promote the whatever it is, challenge, act, uh, or in some cases, downright illegal activity? Uh, gonna talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Michael Tobes gonna be joining us at the end of the show. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're gonna talk about the opposition parties moving forward and then obviously, uh, what the premier has moving forward, uh, and what his agenda will be in the next year or so. It is all coming up on Hamilton today. Election held last week, of course, and uh, pretty much more of the same, more and more of the same, uh, with Premier Ford continuing on, the incumbent uh, and Premier of Ontario, and the opposition not faring too well at all with both leaders uh, stepping down. And now both the Liberals and the NDP looking for uh, new party leaders at that at this point. Let's bring in Tom Parkin, political commentary and uh, sorry, political commentator and columnist, and is with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh yeah, everything's great. Thanks. So obviously a low voter uh, voter turnout this election. We know that when people want change, that's what really gets them out. So uh, what happened to the opposition this time, Tom? Why couldn't they get the vote out?
5: Uh, I I suspect that a lot of the low turnout had to do with uh, the the idea that there was no reason to vote. If you were conservative, you were were inclined to vote conservative, but you chose not to, just got too busy, forgot about it. Eh, Maybe it was because you figured your guy was already in, so it wasn't that big a deal. And and for those who were supporters of the NDP or the Liberals, uh, I think they were probably unimpressed with the way that the campaign Went that it ended up at a sideshow in uh, between the NDP and the Liberals. That's not what they wanted. They wanted a head-on head with Mr. Ford, uh, and realized in the last days that, you know, their parties weren't going to win either. So, uh, I think the, those kind of dynamics leave people to be unexcited. It wasn't. It wasn't exciting. There was no showdown with Mr. Ford between Ms. Horvath or anyone else. Didn't happen. That would have been exciting. That would have got people out if there had been an actual risk of mr ford losing his government but it just it just didn't happen the opposition parties got quagmired in their uh, side battle and uh and I think that board
3: clearly what they want. Clearly, the P clearly the PC's got their voters out. So is this a change in in the opposition? Are we going to see it? Because whatever it was that, that the NDP or the liberals were doing uh, as far as a campaign, it just didn't seem to resonate. And and uh, again, I remember uh, having the chat that the, the priorities this election were far, far different than they were in past elections. Uh, the top five issues other than health care, of course, which is always a biggie. Uh, were all economic issues, and it just didn't seem that the opposition didn't have much of a position on that.
5: Mm. I'm not sure that the Conservatives did particularly get their vote out more than the others. There was you know, very low voter turnout, historically low as we see, but it doesn't seem... Um,
3: Yeah, but wait a sec, Tom, 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 Tom. Let's not blame the people at one for the low voter turnout. At the end of the day, it's who got their peoples to the polls. And we all know that when people want change, that's when the the voter turnout is high. When they don't want change, the voter turnout is low. So at the end of the day, it's not really the winner's fault that the low turnout is what it is. That always favors the incumbent.
5: Okay, let me just explain what I was about to explain before you jumped in. My my point is, I think for a lot of conservatives, if if you look at the idea that the other two parties are far behind and your guy is about to win, uh, there's not a huge um, there's not a huge urgency to vote. So and I and I don't think the evidence is there that the low voter turnout was only amongst conservative or potential conservative and NDP voters. It was also. Uh,
3: I also don't think the that t- the low voter turnout had anything to do with the outcome and the reason that any of the NDP or oh. the Liberals fared not very well
5: very much disagree. I I think uh, if you are a new Democrat or liberal potential voter and you see that your party is behind and not about to um, you know put a blow to Mr. Ford, it's not that interesting. If you thought they were close,
3: yeah, but wait a sec. there's fact. the other side, you know, the other side of this is is that if I'm sitting there and I'm seeing that my guy's getting beaten, I'm going to make sure I show up to vote. And again, That's at right. the end of the day, what happened was not enough people voted for the NDP and the liberals. They clearly didn't even motivate enough of their own people to get out and vote
5: because it wasn't
3: close, And we all knew that.
5: So it didn't motivate anybody to go out. There was no friction, there was no energy. Uh, so how you know,
3: did why. I guess my point that I'm making here, Tom, is how did yeah. the Liberals and the NDP miss the mark so greatly? I okay. mean, it's they it, it, they weren't in this from day one. Why did they miss the mark here?
5: Well, I think uh, what happened is that the Liberals and the NDP ended up in a sideshow, uh, fighting it out over who was going to be the one to try and have a showdown with Mr. Ford, and that battle never resolves. It just ground down, and in fact, I think it probably disheartened a lot of people. Who wanted to have either Ms. Horvath or Mr. Duca have some sort of final showdown with Mr. Ford? That would have been exciting. That would have been compelling. That would have got people out to vote. Instead, they were like, "This is the last thing I wanted out of this election was to see those two going at each other like this." While Mr. Ford, you know, really made very few media appearances. So that was that was the essential problem. And, and that that deals with strategics, um, which is not you know a boring. It's a boring story, but in essence, they're going after the same voter pool. Uh, The Libs were going after the NDP's uh, voters from 2018, the NDP were trying to hang on to them, Um, but neither were ultimately able to lay a glove on Mr. Ford.
3: Uh, do you think this makes the opposition rejig uh, their strategy, rejig what their priorities are? Again, it seemed that the priorities this time out, uh, obviously o- over and above health care, were economic issues. It was uh, the cost of housing, the cost of energy, the cost of groceries, uh, inflation. They were all cost sort of related issues, whereas it didn't seem that the, the NDP or the liberals really made any ground there.
5: Um yeah, it may be. I I'm not sure that anybody, to be honest, had a really strong compelling case about affordability. If Mr Ford's, you know, big thing on affordability was getting rid of a sticker on your license plate, um that's not too much that's not too impressive. On the other hand, you know, Ms. Horvath often pointed at the extension of OHIP as an affordability issue. Uh, but the problem there was for a lot of people who say uh, don't have dental coverage, and she was offering to extend uh, OHIP to cover dental, uh, it's not an affordability issue because they just don't go. Uh, you just don't go to the dentist if you don't have dental coverage. So, it's not, it's like at the end of the day, money. Tom, and at the end
3: of the day, at the end of the day, Tom, all you're talking about to me is things that aren't even resonating with the voters, uh, let alone now. So, what do what do these two parties have to do? What do they have to change to fix what they've what they've what they're doing because clearly right now whatever they're talking about is not resonating whether the fighting amongst themselves or whatever so what do they have to do to rejig and 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 get people's attention again
5: yeah the, the only thing I felt did resonate for the opposition um, was in the final week Ms. Horvath turned her campaign to focus more clearly on health care hospitals Healthcare workers, the lack of healthcare workers, the delays, the lineups, the wait lists, and that kind of stuff. I felt that that did feel urgent to people. It did feel repairable. So I would think that, um, opposition parties should keep going on that kind of stuff. Uh, in, uh, there's other, uh, challenges in, uh, in our education system. Which strangely didn't seem to get much.
3: Where were all the distracted. unions? And where were all the unions this election? I mean, like again, there was—they just didn't seem to be any sort of, uh, uh, you know, people throwing stones or mud at, at Ford in that regard this time. So, I mean, if they're not was, there, then then how are the politicians? I guess.
5: Yeah, it's it was definitely less than usual. I think there's a couple of factors to that. One was that uh, the many unions got quite organized in what was called the Working Families Coalition back in, you know, 2014 election especially, uh, which was at that time oriented towards supporting the Liberals. And then that was a strong political force uh, as a third party, but fell, fell apart. And in fact, there were, I don't, I don't think there were any unions supporting the Liberals in this election. The, the Working Families Coalition members either went to the NDP or they went to the PC's. Uh, and And I think the uh, second factor um that made it sort of made it quiet is that there was an extension on the uh, on the ban of third parties getting involved. So it was more difficult for those voices to break through. So, uh you know i don't
3: know uh, i can I, I i don't think any union's got a any any hard time breaking through tom if they want the message out they'll get it out you guys got some work to do tom parkin with us political commentator thanks for the time tom be well okay take care
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Today marks the 78th anniversary of D-Day. And while commemorations are underway in Normandy, we discuss the politics involved in the remembrance of war and memorialization of those who were lost in it. Uh, let's bring in Jeffrey Bird has an uh, interesting article in the conversation, the politics involved in how w- on how war should be memorialized and remembered. Uh, Jeffrey Bird is a professor of war heritage and mem- uh, memory and culture, Royal Roads University, and is with us now. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So,
3: uh, talk a little bit about the significance of this day and how the way we remember it has changed from way back when. Because this is this is uh, something that really defined Canada in the world and its military.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, of course, Canada's involvement in the Second World War was over six uh, long years, and uh, Canadians uh, service personnel were involved in so many different aspects of the war. But uh, D-Day often stands out as a, as a particularly important date because of what it represents. It's, it's the start of the end. It's the, uh, the starting with the liberation of France. And uh, with D-Day follows another 80 days of battle. And And Canadian troops of the five beaches were involved in, of course, Juneau Beach. So that stands us with uh, the Americans and the British and of course, we were also involved with the uh, Canadian um, and British airborne landings on the eastern flank. So there's a lot of fascinating stories that we can dive into. But over the uh, decades, we have seen how uh, remembrance and commemoration has changed. Uh, wh- when we look at a place like uh, Normandy, we see a lot of uh, memorials and museums and you know, 3.5 million visitors every year go to Normandy uh, specifically to uh, visit the war heritage sites uh, and I think many of us know about the challenges that Juneau Beach Centre is facing right now. It's a, a commemorative hub for, for the Canadian story and uh, is is presently under threat um, owing to condo development nearby, It will block the road, will impact on revenue and it's the only Canadian site overseas of the second world war that tells that story you know and in addition to that we also have the the passing of veterans the inevitable passing of hmm. of the uh, greatest generation of people that were involved with the war and who are stand as witnesses and can tell us exactly what happened you know what they saw and when we lose that voice we we must rely on secondary sources right of, film and books yeah. and those kinds of things. So so there are some challenging times where we where we look at these things and how they they evolve over time. And it just is to say that we need to be vigilant about uh, remembrance, that uh, there are always uh, threats and impacts that change how we remember.
3: Um, do we view the military the same way today as we did, uh, you know, m- m- maybe not 78? Well, yeah, let's say 78 years ago. Uh, is it viewed the same? Um, you know, and I can think of of uh, lines that foreign affairs minister Jolie said about, you know, Canada's military were more conveners. We're not necessarily military, a military power where, you know, you talk about those veterans and those that are left boy, you know, I'm sure they'd have a different discussion. Do we think differently of this now?
1: Um, well, I would say, you know, the way warfare occurs and, uh, the just the whole range of conflict occurs today is is different than it was in 1939-45. Yeah. Uh, in that time we had total war and our lives are affected now by the events in Ukraine with gas gas prices and things like that and you know there were lots of concerns and complaints about that and they're very real for for many people. Uh, but back then it was uh it was a daily effect on us in terms of rations, in terms of fuel, and, you know, loved ones going off to war. So I think today's military uh, is, is called upon to do a number of different tasks that were unheard of back then. And, uh, and I think the skill set needs to be uh, recognized as more diverse than it was as just a military force that was there to, you know, uh, advance on the enemy. we're talking about disaster relief, we're talking about uh, peacekeeping, we have a whole range of activities. And when we look back over the past few years around training for Ukrainian forces, I mean, that was really so important when many of us maybe thought, well, that seems a bit lame. But in fact, it's exactly what the Ukrainian forces needed at that time and has certainly benefited them.
3: Uh, my mother, who um, uh, lived through the second world War as a kid, you know, used to tell us stories and and such. and and I remember thinking, you know our generation that followed or the generations that followed uh, had it pretty good until perhaps we were hit with a global pandemic. And now, as you mentioned, the the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and we went for, through a period of time where we didn't have major conflict like this or conflict that, that got the attention of the world the way that this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has. How has that changed this discussion?
1: Well, it, you know, it is uh, it is interesting when you look at post-World war War II and the shift in the way warfare has occurred. And uh, and so you have peripheral wars that went on each decade and some of them we took notice of and many we didn't here in mm-hmm. Canada because they didn't necessarily affect us. Um, and yeah, it, it is interesting. I think it does give us an appreciation of, you know, when we go through events uh, such as COVID and those kinds of things, if we think of six long years of uncertainty and we experienced two Two and a half difficult years, mm. um, and you know, you know, there was lots of anger and frustration, and and uh, in other cases with a long drawn out war, I, I think it makes us more appreciative of the kinds of things that people in the past went through. So uh, yeah, I think it's it is an interesting thing to go through this event and then reflect on history and how other what other generations have gone through. It's still not the same, though, of course, no. um, but it does certainly help us understand, you know, when when things are out of our control in in the world uh, and it affects us and we start looking for placing blame, um, you know, sometimes it's just we have to get on with it. So I think those are the kinds of messages we see, like in the Second World War, when we look at certain nations and what they were going through, like in Britain and Canada and U.S., yeah, there's many things we could talk about with with that.
3: Jeffrey Bird with us, professor of war heritage, memory, and culture, Royal Roads University. On this, the 78th anniversary of D-Day. Jeffrey, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Thanks, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson
0: on Hamilton's news. Today's Talk 900. CXM1.
3: An Ontario judge has imposed stricter bail conditions on Jacob Hogard a day after the Headley front man was found guilty of raping an Ottawa woman, uh, but not guilty of groping and raping a teenage fan. Uh, The Ontario Superior uh, Superior Court judge rejected prosecutors' request to revoke Hogard's bail until his sentencing, which is expected later this summer, saying that she believes the tighter conditions can address the risk the singer might flee as well as the current strong public interest in accountability to talk more about all of this Ari Goldkind is with us defense lawyer and on the line now Ari thank you for the time I hope you're doing well I'm very
4: well hi Scott and William on the boards great to be on with you on a very bizarre interesting verdict
3: Your thought on this one, uh, simply because, uh, obviously, the Me Too movement, we remember where that has been over the last couple of years. Many thought that the music industry was kind of getting a pass on this. Uh, Are you surprised at this conviction?
4: Uh, I'm not surprised, Scott, that he was convicted. I thought there was smoke. Uh, I thought uh, the 16-year-old, there was very possibly going to be a conviction on that. I thought there could be a conviction on both of them, quite frankly, or an acquittal. My concern isn't that he was convicted. That's not what makes me think the verdict is weird, that he was convicted for the 21-year-old Ottawa woman. It is how the jury got there. It is how the judge may have contributed to the jury's deliberations. It is what the rulings were before the trial, during the trial, uh, as the jury was having a lot of things played back. It really concerns me in this Me Too age and perhaps the Johnny Depp civil verdict will push back on this a little bit it's hard to say but you know there's a real disconnect again uh, and I think it's a very unfortunate thing between the courtroom of public opinion and the real courtroom so I will tell you Scott if I could put a, a bow on it I felt that the verdict was shocking not because he was convicted of something but which one of the two and how they arrived at that conviction.
3: So the jury was having some issues and said that at one point they were deadlocked. The judge told them to go back. Many or some have said that, that what that does is create a situation where it puts pressure on jurors to change others' opinions. Is that is that your point here?
4: No, actually, and that's a great question you asked, Scott. No, I'm not saying that jurors would abandon their heartfelt beliefs. They're specifically instructed not to do that. So if Scott Thompson's on a jury and William from the boards is on the jury as well, and you're getting pressure and you're being told to move off something you sincerely believe, you're specifically told by the judge that the, that the system will have none of that. That's not my concern. My concern is when they're asking for essentially a redo, a playback of the entire trial, that concerns me. It concerns me that they said on Thursday afternoon, Scott, they're deadlocked on some counts, plural, counts. Well, there were only three counts. They acquitted on the 16-year-old. I thought one of, her convic- one of her allegations was easy to refute, but the sex assault one, not so much. They convicted on the 21-year-old, so the deadlock on some counts, I think, undertook some gymnastics over the weekend. And then as they were playing the evidence back for the jury... Now, I want you to picture this, Scott. I know radio is a, not a visual medium, but you'll picture this. If you're 12 jurors sitting in a courtroom and there's no witness on the stand, okay, you're just having evidence played back through a recording system. Where do you think the jury might be looking? That's not a trick question. I give you three guesses. One of your three will get it right. Where do you think the jury will be looking?
3: Uh, At the lawyer.
4: Okay. What's your second and third guess?
3: The judge, the juror. Correct, um, I, correct. Yeah.
4: correct. So I'll stop you there. Your second guess was the good one. So don't buy a lottery ticket until tomorrow, because tonight your first numbers won't do it. <laughs> Jurors sitting in a room tend to look at a judge as descended from the mountaintops. And when you've got nothing to look at, and Hogarth's not going to look at you, and you know the lawyers are probably looking at your computer, you're going to look at the judge. The judge is also right in front of the jury in terms of their eye line. And this judge, and she admitted doing so when the defense lawyer's playback of complainant number two was being played back, the judge was making faces, shaking her head, and then nodding when the Crown would object to the defense lawyer. Now, Mm. if anybody doesn't think that's going to have an effect on 12 ordinary residents of Toronto who know nothing about the law, who aren't trained lawyers, who think judges descend from the mountaintops. The defense lawyer confronted her on it, Scott. you got to picture this. And the judge acknowledged it and then doubled down outside of the presence of the jury and said, you know what, Madam Defense Lawyer, you know the disdain I have for how you conducted your cross-examination of the complainant, but I'll have a better poker face on a going-forward basis. I'm paraphrasing. And this is the same complainant, Scott, that when the defense lawyer was doing her job. And if you want to ask me what kind of job is that, I'll answer. When the defense lawyer was doing her job advocating for her client, the judge turned to complainant number two, the one he's convicted for, and said, we don't want to make you suffer anymore. Do you need a break? This shouldn't be making you suffer. Well, I can assure you, Scott, there isn't another charge in the criminal code in Canada where cross-examination would lead to a judge in the same circumstances, in the same ways, turning to an alleged victim and saying, well, the defense lawyer is making you suffer. I could add about five more things to that Mm. answer. We don't have time, obviously, with 4 o'clock coming up. But this is the sort of thing that doesn't concern me about the verdict of guilty. I think Hogarth really did some bad things in that room. That's my personal view. But I'm much more concerned as a criminal defense lawyer is does Mr. Hogarth, get a fair trial? Is it even, Stephen? Is there any finger on the scales of justice? And that's where my concern is today.
3: So there, the, there will be an appeal.
4: Great question. So there will be an appeal. And Scott, I'm telling you right now, call it a news flash. put a breaking news banner underneath us. It's going to go nowhere. Ask me why. Why? Because sexual assault in the Me Too era, let's go back to the first comment. Every single man convicted in he-said-she-said cases in the Me Too era, they all say they'll appeal. They've all been handcuffed from defending themselves, and Mr. Hogard was. There were rulings that prevented Mr. Hogard from fully defending himself. Those rulings don't exist in any other area of law other than sex assault. Many people can celebrate that. There'll be interest groups who say, that's a fantastic thing. Okay, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Every appeal... For convicted men in he-said-she-said cases, 99% of them fail. And at the Supreme Court of Canada, 100% of them fail. The last 34 in a row, Scott, now that's like a perfect game in baseball, right? They're all 34 individual cases. They all have different issues for the Supreme Court. 34 in a row have been shut down by the Supreme Court. This is an area of law, Scott where it's the easiest charge in the criminal code to bring against somebody, and it's the hardest to defend. So even though this is an appeal lawyer's dream, and it is given the issues we don't have time to talk about, Mr. Hogart is likely, and I would say certainly, to have no success on appeal, even though there'd be tremendous merit to it.
3: Defense lawyer Ari Goldkind with us, talking about the uh, Ontario judge convicting Jacob, uh, Jacob Hogard of Headley. Ari, as always, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating discussion. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. Uh, The first episode of Jordan Carrier's new three-part podcast, One Dish Many Stories, debuted last week near the start of National Indigenous History Month. It is available wherever you get your podcasts, and its goal is to provide insight on the indigenous history of the land that Hamilton now sits on. To talk more of all of this, Jordan Carrier is with us, host of One Dish Many Stories, also director of the Community Engagement with National Consortium for Indigenous Medical Education, and with us now, Jordan. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
2: thanks for having me.
3: So talk about this podcast, where you got the idea, because I always found history is, is is more understandable if you can localize it in some way. This is a great idea. How did you come up with this?
2: Uh, it's something that started percolating about over a year ago and through the past year, especially after the uh, recovery, the findings of the unmarked graves in Kamloops and coming face-to-face with my neighbors and and other non-indigenous folks in this city that didn't really fully understand the impact of of history, uh, indigenous histories, indigenous experiences um, across these lands. That um, I started thinking we need to broaden the narrative of what history and experiences um, indigenous peoples and these lands, um, particularly. Um, are. There's more than just the the how, like, the the economic development of a city or this and that. There was history prior to Hamilton existing. There were names that we called these different locations and bodies of water, Um, and that all, like, still exists in our contemporary world, and I wanted to showcase that.
3: Uh, I think, uh, although obviously uh, the indigenous community knew, the non-indigenous community, uh, and we can't say it wasn't there because it was there. Uh, we just chose not to look at it for what reason, for whatever reason. And Kamloops was had had an incredible incredible impact. On the country, and I think even more so with the non-indigenous community. I, I think it was a a um, um, a moment for Canada to to really look back at a history that it didn't realize it had. What sort of questions did you get from non-indigenous people once you know post Camloops and the discovery of uh, the horrific discovery of of uh, of those graves and such? D- did you find the interest just uh, the questions? coming at you were, were much different than you had had prior to that?
2: Uh, absolutely. It was certainly like a, a reckoning that that Canada mm. was coming in, in to face with. And um, a lot of folks came to me and I admitted they felt they were being complacent in, in how they have benefited from the way that history has, and, and currently Indigenous people have been treated, and wanted to know how to do better. How can they... Support the Indigenous community and continue to learn. Where can they get, you know, gr- good research just to continue their learning, and what can they do?
3: How does the Indigenous community accept that after this many years? That all of a sudden you know, it seems that Canada is waking up.
2: Um, I think I, I I think it's mixed all over. I think you know sometimes folks are just like you know, we've been saying this for a very 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 long yeah. time. And then we're also like, finally, let's go. Like we're in this together. We can, if we work together, we can, um, you know, make a more just, just I don't know what we want to call it, Canada or some people don't like to call it Canada, but a more just world for all of us to live in. And if we look to indigenous people, even when it comes to climate change and those and that, that, that we can be the leaders in a lot of that. And we've been saying a lot of what needs to be done um, And it benefits all of us when we protect water, it benefits all humans and life that access water. It's not just indigenous people. So a lot of folks are starting to see that and we're building relationships and we're working together. And some people are like a little too late to, um, it's a little too late, but, and I think that's valid too. And I can understand that as well.
3: Um, you know obviously this is indigenous history indigenous history that we have tried to erase past generations but this is also Canada's history and I remember being a young guy and thinking we don't really have anything. We don't have, you know, we're a young country, we're a a country of immigrants, but it's not that we didn't have it, it's that we weren't being taught it. We didn't know it. And to me, this is now a reckoning, not only for Indigenous people, but for non-Indigenous people, because this is the history of our country. Everybody needs to know this.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's a big part of the whole colonial project is, is education too that by not educating about that it made it easier to extract the resources or you know do these unjust things to a community communities of people across the lands. So now we're at a point where we've we've been able to fight that and continue to exist and continue to thrive and be incredibly strength and uh, resilient peoples. Um, and Canada's waking up and we can continue to, to undo some of that and continue to learn, understand the treaties. I mean, the treaties are what makes Canada, Canada. And for so long, people don't understand that we're all treaty partners and we have responsibilities, each of us, not just Indigenous peoples.
3: And this podcast focuses on the history within Hamilton, uh, closer to home.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was really important. I've lived in Hamilton for 20 years now. I'm originally from Saskatchewan, but uh, my roots are here. I've been here 20 years. My, my kids have been born here. They're off to high school next year. So they've lived there. It's really just like, this is my home. This is where my community is. Um, so it was just really special and important for me to like, look at my own backyard and what can I do in my own backyard to, to help um, build relationship with uh, settlers in Hamilton um, and the rest of the Indigenous community.
3: Jordan Carrier with us, host of One Dish, Many Stories, also the Director of Community Engagement with the National Consortium of Indigenous Medical Education. And this podcast focuses on uh, not only Indigenous history, but specific to Hamilton and how we can better understand it. Great idea, Jordan. Congratulations. Good luck with this moving forward.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. Um, 100 days. We talked about this uh, on Friday. We've uh, passed the 100-day mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many didn't think it would last 100 hours, and still uh, the brave, heroic people of Ukraine are fighting on, and uh, this just continues to drag on and on past the 100-day mark. What is the significance of the 100-day mark? Where do we go from here? Let's Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary History, Trinity College, and the Monk School at University of Toronto and with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
6: I am, Scott. pleasure to be with you.
3: So here we are at the 100-day mark. L- let me ask mm-hmm. you this from a Russian citizen perspective. Uh, you know, we remember uh, Putin was going to go in. This is going to be uh, quick and over in no time. How does this play out? in russia with the russian citizenry that this is dragged on over than over 100 days now
6: well it's tough to say with confidence how this is going over with the russian citizenry because we don't have access to reliable survey data and the russian citizenry itself does not have access to uh... uh free media but um, my guess is that there's uh... there's some degree of disquiet given how putin had expected to present to uh, his own people and the rest of the world with a fait accompli, to basically gobble up uh, Ukraine, or at least subjugate it politically, before anybody could do anything, and before it could escalate into a, a, the wider conflict it has now become. So in that sense, uh, Putin has uh, has got to pay attention to his uh, his home base.
3: Uh, Whatever they are being fed, and I'm sure it's obviously something different than, than the rest of the world knows, but would they still not even question but why this is taking so long, even if we are winning, if this is happening, still why it's taking so long?
6: Absolutely, absolutely, because uh, Russia, at least reputationally, is still a major military power. Ukraine is not. And uh, and the very fact that this has taken 100 days comes as a surprise to many people when russian forces first moved into ukraine nobody would have predicted 100 days people were predicting something more in the neighborhood of 100 hours before ukraine essentially said uncle and that did not happen um, and that is uh, i dare say as much of a surprise in russia as anywhere else in the world
3: so where are we now i mean uh, obviously we're still seeing images of the devastation and such but has this stalled i mean has this war stalled
6: it has stalled in significant ways i mean putin has not been able to seize most of the uh, the major population centers in uh, in ukraine he has had some success particularly in the donbass and uh, and and may if he moves in odessa be able to deprive ukraine of access to the black sea which would have major consequences not only for ukraine which would be Hampered uh, economically, but for the rest of the world, which is increasingly struggling with uh, with the limited access to uh, uh, Ukrainian grain upon which it depends. So, in that in that sense, it has stalled. But uh, it is not uh, that doesn't that does not mean we're necessarily going to see a stalemate. There are important developments that have to be paid attention to. And earlier today, an advisor to uh, President Zelensky's chief of staff said that uh, Ukraine needs a lot more by way of long-range multiple rocket launchers. So the demand for weapons, and these ones are likely to prove uh, particularly important and decisive in the, uh, in the battle for, uh, for Ukraine, uh, will continue. And uh, the, de- the demands on the, on the West will continue for economic support, for, for military assistance, for, uh, for solidarity, for uh, sanctions. And pre- precisely because this is a 100-day event uh, with no signs of, of ending any time soon, it's one that actually involves uh, much of the rest of the world in a way that the uh, the fait accompli of 2014 in Crimea did not.
3: Are we obviously Putin uh, complaining that whether it's the U.K. or U.S. US sending in more weaponry, more advanced mm-hmm. weaponry, uh, that's only going to make it obviously more difficult for Putin. Uh, does he threaten nukes at this point? Because that was a, a conversation uh, a few weeks ago, and it seems that's now subsided, although things have stalled out, it appears.
6: I think he's passed on the major opportunity for escalating the conflict, which came with his Victory Day speech a few weeks ago, when there was a lot of speculation that he might indeed threaten to uh, escalate massively and put, uh, put Russia on a war footing. He didn't do that. Uh, on the other hand, he didn't declare victory and pull out either. So it's still a situation with, uh, with many degrees of uncertainty.
3: Uh, with the new advanced weaponry arriving more and more every day, it seems. Does that escalate this in any way? Does that uh, push him into a corner?
6: Well, it means that uh, the Ukrainians have uh, something approaching a, a fair chance at uh, at holding him off. It doesn't. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's not going to uh, uh, threaten his uh, political survival by itself. But it's going to. It's going to complicate life for him, no doubt.
3: Uh, obviously, when the initial invasion uh, didn't work out the way he wanted, it, would, it appeared that he was going to take just the eastern region or regions. Is that still the plan? Is that still happening?
6: Well, he does seem to be concentrating much of his, uh, much of his forces and many of his forces in, uh, in the Donbass region, and he might at some point essentially do what I suggested earlier, just declare victory, take the Donbass, uh, and uh, and call it a day. Uh, it's it's tough to predict what he would uh, what he would do because he's almost certainly not being given uh, honest advice by the uh, the yes men by whom he is surrounded.
3: So uh, at the end of the day, can he declare victory? And if he does, will will Ukraine just fight back and retake as we've seen in other parts of the country?
6: It very well might. Uh, my guess would be that it would, and that, in fact, any effort on his part at this stage to declare victory would uh, run into a lot of pushback from Ukraine. So in that sense, he is in a a bit of a corner. He's past the stage where he can wind this down on, uh, on what he might consider acceptable terms, although, as I, I always say when I'm interviewed on these questions, it's tough to speculate what's going on in his mind.
3: Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity uh, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto. Speaking of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine now well past 100 days. Jack, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer,
2: he'll delve into the issue until he is.
3: You're
0: listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: Gas prices continue to go up. Uh, Dan McTagg saying earlier on that uh, three cents a liter by the weekend, they're going to go up again. Everybody is talking about the high price of uh, fuel and energy, except it seems uh, for the Prime Minister. Uh, he's the only one that seems to be uh, not chatting about this. Uh, and, and again, uh, I, I, was at, uh, I was out and about today, and, and I literally couldn't believe it. It's like, have I bought a pickup truck? Have I bought a pickup truck? I remember thinking I would love to have a pickup truck. I would love to own a pickup truck. Wouldn't that be great? But I can't afford to fill it up. Because it was like a 100, 150 bucks to fill up your pickup truck. Now uh, that's how much it costs to fill up your minivan. Except you don't have a pickup truck. You got the minivan or a uh, Toyota, whatever. You know. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's unbelievable the amount of money we are spending on energy uh, at this point in time. What gives? Will anything give? Is there anything? that governments can do to ease this for us. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Uh, Thank you, uh, Scott. Yes, doing very well.
3: Ian, it seems that everyone is talking about gas prices except the Prime Minister. Is there anything he can do to help us get through this?
7: Uh, Yes, there is. There is. Um, There's two separate things uh, that can be done. Ah, uh, one's short term, and one is a uh, longer term. Uh, the short term is uh, the uh, it relates to the gas taxes, and I noticed I said taxes plural, um, federal and provincial taxes. And there's at least three taxes federally, um, but federal and provincial taxes together are approximately forty percent of the cost of the retail uh, price of of gasoline at the pump. So I'm just gonna use two dollars a liter. I know it's higher than that. Uh, but two dollars is a nice round number that we can multiply by forty percent to figure out that the taxes are eighty cents per liter on a two dollar two two dollar a liter um uh two foot you know, fuel in your tank. Of course, it's up to above that now 205, 210, 215. So the point is, uh, governments are taking not quite half, 40% is, you know, approaching a, a half. So in the short run, and that's both uh, that's consumption taxes, that's carbon taxes, and that's sales taxes, HST. So the three together are a very significant component. And so, yes, they could announce a temporary uh, tax suspension. Of any one of those three, or all of those three, but it's within their authority. And anyone who says they can't do it, and I've, I've heard intimations from uh, the federal government, oh, our hands are tied. No, they're not. Uh, the taxing power of the government of Canada has been tested multiple times over the years in the Supreme Court of to the Supreme Court of Canada. Saying, uh, can the uh, you know are there restrictions on the federal government on the authority of the government to impose taxes? And at the federal level, essentially, there's none. If uh, that they can, their their the so-called taxing power is unlimited for the federal government. So they can impose taxes, they can cancel taxes, they can reduce taxes, they can increase taxes. They do it with income taxes, they uh, personal income taxes. They do it with corporate taxes. They do it with excise taxes, and they do it with carbon taxes, and they do it with sales taxes. There's so
3: you said numbers. short-term, you said short-term, mean, what about long-term?
7: Well, long-term, and I've been studying this very closely because I've been fascinated by it, the, uh, everyone blames, uh, and starting with the prime minister, well, it's all because of Russia. You know, it's all because of Russia. If Russia just hadn't done that, and horrible as Russia did, but, the, you know, everything would be normal again. That is false. False. The problem right now, in and it's not just in Canada, to be fair, it's in the U.S. and in Europe, there's a desperate shortage of refinery capacity. Hmm. Why? And this has been, this is in all, the because we've closed
3: them all- Because we've closed them all down, Ian?
7: We've closed down our oldest, most efficient, inefficient plants that can't meet modern environmental standards. Okay, fair enough. Then the obvious question is, well, if the demand is there, why are we not building new refineries? Well, they're very expensive. And the, uh, the amount being invested, capital investments, in new oil and gas, including refineries, is down very, very dramatically over the last three or four years. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the prime minister and other leaders, let's be clear, people like Mark Kearney are saying, don't invest in oil and gas. It is over. The oil and gas world is coming to an end. Stop doing it. And so there's been interest groups that have environmental groups that have gone after this industry as well as leaders. And so we are under investing. In oil and gas capital investment. And we have a serious shortage of refinery capacity. This is at the IEA website, International Energy Agency, which is a U.N. body. It's also at the U.S. Department of Energy. And so oil and gas industry are just terrified of investing in new oil and gas investments because they're being demonized and they're being told, if you do, we'll come after you. So the, sh- the longer term, what the prime minister can do is announce a new policy where he says, we will not demonize you. We will not penalize you for investing in new refinery capacity. And he could invent- announce a new energy policy where he says, we're going to be going into the future, and yes, it's going to be a lot more uh, emphasis on alternatives, for sure, but we are not going to shut down pipelines. We are not going to uh, go after you for refining oil and gas, but we will require carbon capture down the road. In other words, provide assurances to the industry that are billions of dollars of new investment will not be abrogated or penalized or stranded, to use Mark Carney's famous phrase.
3: However, if he even did, if he even did the long-term or short-term with tax relief, that goes against uh, his climate change policy. How does he balance that? Is that impossible here?
7: That's, well, that's, that's where I'm going. He's yeah. got to make a choice, and he doesn't want it. That's why he's silent on this.
3: Yeah, Because
7: yeah. what he has to say very quickly, Scott, is he has to say, look, we've got to have a balance between the two. We cannot just shut down uh, investments in oil and gas and create shortages when we haven't built the alternative system <laughs> yeah. in place that's going to take years to come. He's bought into this chimera, this illusion, that while well, we just flick a switch and presto abracadabra, we get rid of all or much of the oil and gas and we just sail merrily along into uh, alternatives. We've seen around the world this is not true. The IEA, which is very pro-green, very pro decarbonization has actually said we're not only in the middle of an oil crisis, we're in the middle of a natural gas crisis and an electricity crisis because we're not building the alternatives. We do all kinds of posturing and lots of photo ops, but we don't have substantive policies in place to develop an assured supply uh, of a balanced supply of uh, energy, including electricity, alternative electricity, as well as uh, carbon, uh, uh, carbon capture, oil and gas and pipeline. So
3: it seems that uh, it, it seems that these green taxes are, are really not helping us in any way environmentally. They're just an excuse to line the pockets of governments. Uh, Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: We certainly know. We talked about it last week about uh... the the rash of threats uh... written in hamilton various hamilton high schools uh... westdale across the road from us um, june third on the friday uh... they cancel class Many thinking that had gone too far, but again, we don't know the threat at that at this point. Uh, so are these copycat situations, are these kids being kids, is this social media, is it uh, witnessing things like we've seen in Texas and copycats, um, you know, trying to get attention? Uh, what does the role or does the media play a role here, whether it's social or traditional? Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. And Jeff is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
8: I'm well, Scott, and you too, I presume.
3: Yes, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. How does coverage like we've seen in Texas and what have you? And, you know, I remember talking to somebody uh, from the United States about the shooting that had happened in Buffalo, and they said it's just a different city this time, one that's close to you. Unfortunately, this keeps going on, and we keep hearing about it. Um, does this affect, does this coverage affect what kids do? Does this have any link whatsoever, or is it social media? Is it kids being kids? How do you explain this?
8: Well, if I had the answer to that, I'd uh, probably be a very wealthy person. But I don't have a definitive answer, but I can give you a couple of ideas. One is that the Internet has made it easier to disseminate lots of information. Some of it's true. A lot of it is not. A lot of it is um, what's called moral panic, that people are told that they need to be afraid because of something that may or may not have happened. And I think this puts uh, the media, uh, broadcasters and newspapers in a particularly difficult position because it's one thing if something has happened that people are talking about and it's imperative that the media like you guys actually report what's going on so that the community can feel uh, aware of the situation. In this instance, I don't think anything has happened, unlike, unfortunately, what's happened in in Texas and Buffalo, Mm -hmm. New York. So um, I'm kind of on a little bit on the conservative side of this. I think that there is an argument to be made that this story should not be reported, at least not in the way that allows for this kind of panic to ensue. Nothing really has happened. The police have, as far as I understand it, have charged one or two students with mischief. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the anxiety level out there right now, everywhere, is very high because of what's happened in Texas and and Buffalo. And so the media is in 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 a difficult situation. If they don't report it and it's all over the internet, then people could legitimately say, why aren't they reporting this and what else are they not reporting? And that, to me, is the kind of the danger of these kinds of stories. But at the same time, strikes me and, uh, you know, in my in my career (laughs) as a manager, as a news manager, we had to make these tough decisions all the time. Do we report something that people are talking about, even if it cannot be proven at this point? And that becomes a real challenge for all media.
3: Has this changed post global pandemic? I mean, we know what we've all been through in the last, uh, you know, two years, two and a half years. Um, many are just fatigued, exhausted by the whole thing. Um, uh, is our head in a different space post pandemic?
8: Um, I think there's a lot of exhaustion out there. I think that people are turning away from the news because they feel, and this is this is my instinct kicking in here, I have have no evidence for this, but just my sense is, is that people are saying, how much more of this can we take? And so there is a certain level of disconnect and even, dare I say, distrust of the media reporting every horrible event that happens. And I think that this puts a lot of pressure on educators and media organizations and media managers to feel the need to report something that serves the interests of the people, not just as consumers of news, but as citizens. And that what, becomes the challenge for you guys. What advice
3: do you have for parents who are trying to wade their way through this?
8: Uh, don't panic. Um, be, you know, we have to be more aware of the impact of social media on our children Um and we have to talk to them about what are you, what are you following on the internet? Who are you believing and why are you believing them and why not? And these kinds of conversations, and I think educators should be having them as well. What I tried to do when I was teaching out at U of T Scarborough was I would ask my first year students, 18, 19 year olds, what did you see in the news before you came to class? because I asked them not to turn on their cell phones and mm. their computers in class. I wanted them to talk to amongst ourselves about what is it that they saw on the internet this morning before you came to class and what did you think of it and did you share it? And if you shared it, why? And these, these are kind of simple questions in a way that just allow students and, and others to think a little more deliberately about what they are consuming and what they and what they are sharing. And if your Uncle Fred sends you something that he's seen on the internet and he thinks it's interesting, terrific, or terrifying, better question Uncle Fred about how, why are you doing this? Where did it come from? How do you know? And what are the consequences?
3: It'll be interesting to see if the pendulum swings back with our exha- exhaustion and, and if we, re- we we try to rebalance all of this.
8: Well, from your mouth to God's ears, they say.
3: <laughs> there you go. Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Always fascinating, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Bye. Obviously, last week, uh, Doug Ford wins another majority and uh, the premiership of Ontario. Uh, The other two parties in disarray as uh, both now looking for uh, new leaders. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, and a speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Oh, and his latest in the National Post is uh, Doug Ford's conservative triumph, exactly what Ontario needs. And uh, Michael Tobe is with us now michael thanks for the time i hope you're well
9: my pleasure scott hope you are too
3: so uh you're writing in your column this is exactly what ontario needs is it what the federal conservatives need
9: well that remains to be seen i mean it remains to be seen in the sense that voting for the federal conservative leader will not be held until september the 10th we know what some of the candidates have brought in in terms of their total numbers for example pierre paul de has said that he had over 311,000 people that he signed up. Uh, Patrick Brown has expressed that it's more than 150,000 on his side. We don't know what Jean Charlet's numbers and the other candidates are, but there's obviously a large chunk or a large swath of people who've now come in and want to express their interest in the Conservative leadership candidates by placing a vote for one of them, whoever their favourite candidate is, and from there we'll be able to figure it out. Now, in terms of just sort of quickly correlating the two... Doug Ford's conservatism, or basically what the principles of Ford Nation, his sort of guiding philosophy is, or are, is very different than what the federal conservatives, generally speaking, um, support right now. Ford Nation, and I've written this a bunch of times, and others have done their analysis as well, Ford Nation is basically a combination of a bit of populist rhetoric, rhetoric combined with small-c conservative principles. So obviously that means that you have the basic concepts of conservatism, which we allude to, which are, you know, low taxes, small government, more individual rights and freedoms. But you also have uh, Doug Ford's populist um, aspect to it as well, which his late brother, the former Toronto mayor, Rob Ford, also believed in, where you're giving more power back to the people. You want to put more money in the the pockets of taxpayers. You want to obviously make sure fiscally you're, you're being more prudent, more wise in terms of how you save money. The two things obviously mesh with one another, that being the populist element of Doug Ford's philosophy and the conservative element of it as well. Um, But those points of view are also combined with the fact that Doug Ford has been able to build relationships and create alliances with others. You know, his relationship, for example, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland, the finance minister, who are both liberals, was actually you know, emblematic of how well Ontario and the federal government worked together at times during COVID-19 and still are to this day. And Ford and Freeland have both expressed their, you know, their pleasure of the working partnership that they built of two people who are diametrically opposed to one another. As well, very quickly, Doug Ford earned the support of several unions. Yes, not the large public sector unions, but a lot of construction unions who don't ordinarily vote conservative, don't ordinarily support the conservatives. And it showed that Doug Ford's message was able to basically go across the aisle and across the province in the sense that he had a huge amount of people support him. That, yes, a lot of them were traditional conservatives or what we would express as modern conservatives today, but there were also a lot of non-conservatives or non-ideological people as well that's something that the federal conservatives are certainly looking at and whoever wins be it Pierre Paul Lievre, Jean Chirac etc they may have to take some of what Doug Ford's winning formula was and incorporate it into their formula
3: it seems that this is a bit of a turning point here, a turning point in the sense that it's the evolution of Doug Ford. It's also a turning point in the elections that the NDP and the Liberals have fought for the last several years are just simply not working anymore. Um, you know, there was a time when uh, during the federal elections, y- you know, the candidates, conservative candidates didn't want to be seen near Doug Ford. Um, whereas now i'm I'm guessing they're certainly t- taking note of his of his victory do you think that will that will change things in in any way because again pierre Polyev seems to be a bit more of a divisive guy he he is pushing those buttons and maybe this ontario election signals that people are growing tired of that no
9: i think it's just basically a difference in leadership style you know not everyone is obviously cut from the same cloth we're all different and if you and i were for example running for politics, we would handle things differently, much the same way your listeners would, much the same way people have no interest in politics would. It's but everybody
3: was everybody's been, been saying Michael that everything's going really divisive it's getting well, populous on both sides la 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 and then know. you know Doug Ford he comes in and he doesn't play the game it's hard to even tell what team he's on he's just governing he's not playing favorites mm-hmm. or, or what have you um mm-hmm. and that obviously worked gangbusters for him So sure. you know it, it, is the day of, of poking the bear are, are people getting agitated with that?
9: I don't know. I mean, Doug Ford is also an enigma as well. I mean, you have to mm. keep that in mind. He's very unusual. I mean, this. Yep. I know people like to make these ridiculous comparisons to Donald Trump and others. He he has dismissed it himself. No, not, not at because all. Because it wasn't politically viable. It's not accurate at all. No. I met Doug Ford when he was much younger, long before he was in politics. I met him and his late brother Rob both in Doug Ford Senior's electoral office. Their father was a PC MPP for Mike Harris and the Premier for one term. And I can tell you the Doug Ford that I met years ago is the Doug Ford I'm seeing today. Very pleasant, very affable, gregarious, willing to listen to people, you know, or at least publicly listen to people. Privately, he has his own thoughts and ideas like every other human being. But he believes that people should be listened to, should be paid attention to. And it's not what we saw during the circus like environment in Toronto during City Hall or City mm. during you know in Toronto City Hall in between twenty ten and twenty fourteen. This was a person who was protecting his brother, protecting his family, and was dealing with crisis after crisis, not day by day, but almost minute by minute, and the stress it must have caused is enormous. I mean, place yourself in Doug Ford's shoes, anyone. It would be incredibly hard to deal with. This has nothing to do with political ideology, partisanship. It's—you yeah. know If you're going to defend your family, it's tough. So the Ford we're seeing today is the personality that I've seen that people like, well, say, Warren Kinsella recently wrote a column, The Sun. He has seen certain things, and others have too. And a lot of us have touted that the Doug Ford we saw during the circus-like atmosphere in Toronto City Hall was not the Doug Ford we were familiar with. The one we're seeing now, as I said, is a bit of an enigma. He can work past ideology, past partisanship, and build relations with people who are not natural allies, union leaders, um, and others Mm. who just would not necessarily vote for the party or support it. So for the federal conservatives, I don't know. I mean, each leader is different, or a leadership candidate is different. And Pierre Polyabra, sure, he's pressing buttons, but that's sort of his style. As I said, I've known him since he was an intern in Jason Kenney's office. That's the way he handles things. But he's also a very smart political guy, as some of the other leadership candidates are. And they realize that if Doug Ford has hit upon a winning formula that makes sense today, maybe not five years from now, but today they will encapsulate part of it in their own platforms and it doesn't mean the divisive nature of the conservative leadership race is going to end anytime soon scott you know you're this is a battle for the heart and soul of the party so there's going to be a lot of tough language and a lot of difficult moments that we've seen during leadership debates and otherwise but you will also see maybe just maybe a little bit of doug Ford's messaging as a way to maybe broaden the conservative tent or at least if nothing else, broaden the conservative message to give others the comfort that if you're going to have a change federally and you're going to boot out Justin Trudeau and the Liberals after three elections and a lot of nonsense that you and I have gone through and I've gone through with so many others, and I'm sure you have too, the way to do it may be to follow some of Doug Ford's political model or political formula and the personality that really is and has always been Premier Doug Ford.
3: Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post uh, National Post and Washington Times, and speechwriter for former uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to
0: the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am just... How are you? I'm doing good. You know what? I, I was thinking, because um, uh, I, I filled up with gas today, <laughs> huh. and uh, yeah, you know, I always wanted a pickup truck, Scott, because, you know, I just, they're big, and they're, I, I love that. I'd love to own a pickup truck, but I, I, I can't afford a pickup truck, because I, I, I can't afford to put 100 or or 150 bucks into a vehicle, and now apparently I own one, because that's what it costs me to fill up now, except, you know, uh, I got a minivan. Um, so, like, I, I, I just cannot believe that everybody is talking about this except the Prime Minister. Do you think it's time for the Prime Minister to uh, give us some of our money back to ease us through this situation?
5: How many times do you think the Prime Minister has dipped into his own wallet to fill up the suburbans that chew up more gas than your house does for every kilometer? How often do you think he's paid to fill up one of those? Zero. There's your answer. I mean, I'm you know, I'm
3: convinced, and I've been convinced this since the Kathleen Wynne days. Like I'm all for saving the planet. I'm like every other Canadian. I think we gotta address this. Like most Canadians feel that way. It's what they don't agree on is how to get there. But I am convinced that the whole green uh, you know, when it comes to politics and especially on the left, it's it's a license to print money. Uh you can disguise anything as green and you can take money away from the public left, right, and center. And we keep paying more and more and more and more and more on some sort of environmental tax, and yet we never seem to hit any of our targets or anything. I'm convinced this is just a way for governments to generate revenue maybe, for the general. Maybe. And I, I don't
5: know, I mean, but I'll say this. I am more and more and more convinced that any time a government is going to pass a law that requires higher levels of taxes on something, there should be a little subclause in that that says government officials will no longer be eligible for this to be included as part of their daily coverage by the taxpayers. You want to, imp- you want to increase taxes on gas? Great. But now the car that drives the prime minister, he will pay for that out of his pocket. Now you want to charge more for air fuel? Good. The Prime Minister will now pay for a portion of that out of his pocketbook. Groceries, you want to make it so that meat prices go up? Good. They're not going to serve the Prime Minister groceries at Sussex Cottage unless he's paid for those groceries out of his salary. It's way too easy. And it's not just federal politicians either. It's way too easy for politicians to put rules in place when they don't ever... Apply to them. They never seem to apply to them. If you want to see one of the most unbelievable things, you can probably still find it online. Remember when Al Gore put out that movie, The Inconvenient Truth?
3: Yeah, yeah.
5: And they were showing it at some film festival at some point. And the the great video was that Al Gore, and he was the the vice president or former vice president. So you got to be have security. But there was a caravan of about ten Suburbans that drove him two blocks from his hotel to the theater and then idled outside the theater for the whole time while this movie about the planet and pollution was going on. And it's like, how come you guys and you women talk this great game and never have to deal with the same stuff that the rest of us do to solve the problems that you tell us exist. If the prime minister and all the other politicians, the premier, the opposition leaders, everybody, if they want to tell me that it's essential that there be 55 cents of tax or whatever it is, 55 cents of tax on every liter of gas. Great. Every time you fill up the prime minister, the premier, the opposition leaders, cars, even if we say the government will pay for the tax, those 55 cents are going to be taken out of their paycheck for every leader. Then we'll start to see maybe that if they recognize what the impact of this is, I know you're short on time, but I got to tell you one other thing. I watched the video today. Ryan Whitney is a guy. He's a, former hockey player, he's now part of a group Fit and Chicklets, it's a podcast, incredibly popular podcast. Online right now, it's not about taxes per se, but you know, we are still we are in this country, apparently about the only country now at our airports that still require all the COVID testing.
3: Yeah. yeah.
5: And it's causing chaos. This guy just put out a thing on, on uh, Twitter, a video on Instagram. He's been stuck in the Toronto airport now for over a day with no way to escape. And there's hundreds and thousands of people who are so backed up because of these laws that they are stuck missing flights, can't get out, can't get their bags. They are stuck yeah. in the airport. But he's got our so, back. But how come the politicians don't have to go through any of this? They have private flights. They don't have to go through the, the yeah. immigration. They don't have to experience what you're, the laws you're passing. I guarantee you some of these laws would be done differently.
3: Scott Radley with us, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator and coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show.
4: See ya. Thanks for
0: listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: All right, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. It's always greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hi, this is Tim. On this 78th
4: anniversary of D-Day, I ask you to just Take a moment, stop, think, and consider where we are because of the brave men on those front lines.
3: Well said.